This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 10th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. States house most inmates and handle the vast majority of criminal cases. And criminal justice reform at the state level continues to be a bit of a mixed bag. Robert Alt surveyed state-level criminal justice reforms of 2018 for the Federalist Society. During Cato's Constitution Day festivities, we talked about how states have changed laws regarding marijuana, bail, and other parts of the criminal code. Most states have uh, ended long ago their legislative sessions. Um, uh, what has been, at least so far, the movement on uh, criminal justice reform at the state level? Well, we actually went ahead and did a a large white paper for the uh, Federalist Society looking at trends in 2018, what happened both in terms of prosecution and defense-friendly policies. And the interesting thing is, I think, as an overview, if you take a look at what's happened in the states, it didn't necessarily trend in just one direction, either pro-defense or pro-enforcement. Indeed, they didn't even necessarily trend in the same direction in the same state. Uh, so let me give you Ohio as an example, my home state uh, and a state that's done a ton on criminal justice reform. Last year, they passed uh, some of the most pro-reform legislation in the country, including allowing defendants to expunge their records if they have been found uh, to be victims of human trafficking, requiring courts to consider drug treatment or rehab in in felony sentencing, expanding local community-based corrections facilities and allowing more people to have criminal charges dropped after completing drug treatment programs, reinstating indefinite sentencing for some felonies. But Ohio also passed strong pro-prosecution legislation, including creating a violent offender registry and enhancing penalties for trafficking fentanyl. So even within the same state, you've got uh, trends going in both directions. I'd say uh, looking across the country, there were a couple of big areas of movement last year. The first was in drug policy. Uh, and and I'd say that you saw a continuation of the trend toward liberalization of marijuana policy. Two states, Vermont and Michigan, decriminalized possession and use of recreational marijuana. Uh, and I think it's worth noting at the outset that these two states share something in common. They border Canada. Um, Canada became only the second country in the world to legalize pot, effective October of last year. And this seemed to have uh, quite a bit of effect with regard to the decision-making in both Michigan and Vermont. Michigan passed their uh, uh, legalization initiative by a ballot initiative. And the passage, uh, you know, having talked to some folks, it, it, it took quite a bit for, you know, a good citizen of Ohio to chat with folks in that state up north, uh, as Woody Hayes used to call them. But chatting with folks about the election, a lot of them, you know, felt like the legalization in Canada, you know, it was going to lead to folks going across the border to purchase, perhaps coming back either with the product or on the product. And they just decided it would be better to actually legalize and have it more uniform in terms of uh, how it was applied. Um, uh, Vermont is interesting because it was the first state to legalize recreational marijuana via legislation rather than by ballot initiative. And I think that this probably says something about the shift in public sentiment, where politicians uh, do not see this as a dangerous or a hard vote. I mean, before this has been a question that you know was left to you get it on the ballot, and you know you sort of allow popular the popular vote to take it. Um, So I think it's kind of a big shift uh, in that sense. 
But the real canary in the coal mine probably uh, in terms of the policy shift, I'd say, is Michigan. Um, it, you know, this is really the first rust belt state to have legalized recreational marijuana. Before this, you're dealing with you know sort of coastal states and Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. Um, but it, it was not the first state that I predicted would uh, go green, as it were. No. Uh, no. It's Midwestern state, that is. Exactly. And after the, you know, and my prediction when that happened is that afterward you would begin to see other states. So Illinois this year uh, legalized recreational. Um, New York State, again, largely seemingly motivated by Canada, uh, uh, has legalized, I think, a beginning effective next year. Um, and to my mind, you know, there's been this tension. Uh, for some time between the federal government and the states on this. And the federal government still has marijuana as a, an, a Schedule One illegal dr drug. Uh, they've gone uh, and executed a policy of discretionary non-enforcement, which they've made clear they can go ahead and change track on at any given time. Um, my guess is that Michigan might be the Uber moment, you know, which is to say Uber had this sort of business model, at least at one point, of going into jurisdictions and not asking permission. They just went ahead and, you know, sort of created a demand for their product. Uh, uh, and, at a, you know, in some uh, jurisdictions, they tried to clamp down on it and prevent it. But at a certain point, it became too difficult. The, the public demand, you know, there, there was a public shift uh, and they sort of jumped past the regulators on it. I wonder whether or not Michigan is sort of the indication of that, which is to say, previous to that, you could have seen perhaps a shift back towards an enforcement policy by the federal government uh, in those jurisdictions that had chosen to legalize at a state level. I think at this point it becomes increasingly difficult. You, you've, you know, you've perhaps hit, hit a tipping point. How uh, how much did those two uh, legalizations, that is Michigan and Illinois, how much did those have to do with those states being broke? Uh, I, I'm sure the tax revenue certainly had something to do with it. Uh, you know, what, but I think in the long run, it'll be interesting to see. It is going to take some federal action at some point to get the banking questions figured out. I mean, it, you know. You still, I was on a panel with the Solicitor General of Colorado a number of years ago when he talked about the fact that the dispensaries in Colorado, when they were paying their state tax bills, did so by bringing suitcases of cash uh, into you know, the treasurer's office because, again, you know, they essentially could not do business with the banks. Now, there's been, again, a discretionary non-enforcement policy applied to some to the banking industry. But uh, given the strictures, there's a number of requirements that are placed upon banks that choose to do business with cannabis businesses that require a huge amount of oversight responsibility by the banks. Um, there are still precious few banks that take that risk. Uh, with respect to uh, prison populations and uh, marijuana, is there much benefit in terms of jail cells freed up at the state level? Are states moving to retroactively uh, commute sentences uh, that are related to the laws that they've passed? Some states have looked at, at retroactive modification, not all. Um, it, it, my my sense is it hasn't had a huge impact with regard to populations, just um, perhaps jail, less so prison. Most of those, you have to be a fairly large uh, uh, trafficker in order to get significant prison time uh, for, for marijuana in, in most states. 
Uh, there are a couple of other things that were interesting looking at uh, legalization of medical marijuana. Utah and Missouri uh, legalized medical marijuana. And and again, of those, I just I, I you know, it, it, to uh, uh, spin off your your comment. Utah is not the first state I would have, you know, sort of picked out to have gone toward legalization, even on medical marijuana. And again, I just think that this goes to the larger trend. Um, at this point, if you've got a, a state that's as deep red as Utah uh, passing something like medical marijuana, I just think, again, this is uh, whether whether you're for or against legalization, I just think that at this point, this is a genie that's probably not going back in the bottle. Uh, one uh, issue, civil asset forfeiture, civil forfeiture uh, reform uh, was popular in a variety of states, according to your uh, look here, Wisconsin, Wyoming, New Hampshire, Idaho, Kansas, Virginia, Tennessee. What what has driven so many states to uh, make a change there? Of course, forfeiture is, is strongly related to the drug war, but uh, why did these states move on that issue? and How did they move? Uh, more than half a do dozen states passed some kind of civil asset forfeiture reform. I, you know, I think this is something uh, uh, that has really been the result of messaging by uh, the free market movement. Uh, and and you know, I'll I'll give an immense amount of credit to uh, the Institute for Justice for you know who's made civil asset forfeiture a priority for years. Uh, the Buckeye Institute, uh, in, uh, we actually had passed uh, civil asset forfeiture previously in Ohio uh, and was heavily involved in that. Cato obviously has been uh, you know, a, 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 an aggressive defender of Since the property 90s. rights. So you know, this is one of those ones where I think, the, I think the free market movement has made a massive impact, part of it by being able to tell the stories of individuals uh, and, and provide real world examples. Uh, when we were talking about civil asset forfeiture in Ohio, uh, you know, one of the the stories that was particularly powerful was that of uh, a small business owner uh, uh, in the Cleveland area, Jennifer, uh, who ran a small business. She she had a beauty salon in a an area of town that was fundamentally unbanked. Uh, you know, the people there didn't have bank accounts. Uh, they paid her in cash. Uh, and so she, as she would leave at the end of the day, uh, after working a, a long day, she would have you know the the proceeds from her business in the day all in cash. Uh, unfortunately, some of the local officers knew something that probably a fair number of your listeners don't, which is that over ninety percent of U.S. currency has traces of narcotics on it. And so, uh, when she got pulled over, they would ask uh, in the because this was a an area where there was drug trafficking going on. Did she have cash on her? And she said. Honestly, yes. From my business, uh, they would call for a drug dog. The drug dog would alert because, as I just mentioned, ninety percent of U.S. currency has traces of narcotics on it, and they would seize uh, uh, her legitimately earned cash. Um, she went and talked to a lawyer. There's got to be something I can do. This was, you know, lawfully gotten, you know, gains. I need this to support my family. Only to be told. Uh, no, there's really not a whole lot you can do uh, because this is a civil action. You don't have a right to counsel, um, and so if you, you know you can go ahead and retain me, and you know, but by the time you pay my hourly fees and so forth to fight this, given the standard of review, you're going to pay more to get your money back than what was seized. Uh, and so for a period of time, she realized that it was she had to pay essentially for this graft 
as the cost of doing business. Um, examples like that, uh, I think, painted a vivid picture and really, I think, was the impetus for the types of reform that you're saying. It seems like a lot of states did diff did pretty dramatically different things, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, you've got, you know, some states simply did some transparency measures to demonstrate, you know, sort of shine a brighter light on what was going on. Uh, states like Wisconsin, for instance, that was the 15th state to require criminal conviction before the state may seize any personal assets. And, you know, I think that's, you know, sort of the, the gold standard, what you're looking for uh, in these sorts of cases. The trend has continued this year as well. Michigan and Arkansas signed civil asset forfeiture reforms that require criminal convictions in many cases in order for the for the state to seize assets. Bail reform has been something that uh, is really seems to have only bubbled up in the last two or three years as a really substantial issue, or at least an issue where there was some movement. Why is am I, am I right to believe that, or uh, and if so, why is that? I think part of it. This is this is an area where, uh, in part, technology has allowed uh, improvements. Which is to say, I think for a long time we knew there were issues with cash bail, and cash bail was kind of a a clunky uh, tool that we used. Uh, and and let me take a step back and you know sort of explain some of the basics of bail, which is to say, okay, you've been charged with a crime, but you've not been convicted of the crime, so we can't, you know, the government cannot punish you. It's impermissible for them to house you in a jail as punishment for that crime. Uh, the Supreme Court has said as much unconstitutional for them to do so. So there's a couple of reasons that they can hold you. They can hold you to make sure that you actually show up for trial or they can hold you for public safety reasons uh, because you're a threat to yourself or to society. Um, and we use at times uh, cash bail as a proxy with regard to those ends, either getting you to show up because you would forfeit your bail bond if you don't show up, uh, or uh, you know, sort of. And I've never entirely understood the justification behind the use of cash bail in order to protect public safety, um, because we've actually. At Buckeye, for instance, shown how individuals have been able to to post very high cash bonds uh, and then gone out and committed horrific crimes. It doesn't necessarily seem that your ability to actually uh, pay a cash bond has any you know sort of high correlation in terms or or cause certainly no causation in terms of your being a safer uh, citizen in society. Right, your level of wealth yeah. does not predict. Uh the risk you pose to society. Exactly. So, but but recent technologies have allowed us to do a few things. I mean, one, you know, we can if we're releasing you and we want to keep track of you, you know, you and and you, you know, perhaps we, you know we're not quite willing to say you're going to be completely released on your own recognizance, and we're going to have no ability to track you. We we can you know use a GPS tracking device in order to to keep tabs on you without simply locking you up and depriving you of your ability to actually you know, continue working in your job. So that technology has helped. The other thing is the development of what are called risk assessment tools, uh, you know, where you use in some sense some of the some big data uh, to take a look at factors and try and make determine, you know, better determinations as to whether or not they're public safety concerns. Well and, and the uh for the defendant, uh being in jail for three days where you are not able to post uh, a bond 
you can lose your job. I mean, the, the, the disruptions to your life in a very short period of time, assuming you don't pose uh, some risk to society or yourself, or yourself uh, are extremely punitive. The uh, the studies on this uh, uh, are are extraordinarily clear. Even you know, uh, even two to three days in jail has massive impacts on individuals' lives. And you know, the number of individuals who lose their jobs, who then have trouble finding another job, even if they're ultimately not convicted, uh, it has long-term consequences on their financial well-being uh, and, and their ability to be a productive member of society. So the more that we can actually keep folks, uh, you know, in positions where they can keep their jobs, where they can stay in the stay in the community. And where the municipality isn't paying, uh, or the state, depending on you know who's who's uh, paying the tab on housing them, isn't paying to keep them in jail, it's far more cost effective. Uh, we've done a number of experiments uh, in Ohio. In uh, we began Lucas County around Toledo, then in Summit County, uh, and the answer is uh, the results were phenomenal. Saved millions of dollars to the locality. More people actually showed up to trial uh, than before in terms of the percentage rates, and fewer crimes committed uh, by people who were uh, released pre-trial. So by using risk assessment tools, we're able to achieve the objectives. Uh, and you don't have the you know the outrageous cases like we had out of Dayton uh, a few years back. When you had you had uh, a kid who uh, was arrested for, um, in this particular case, it was violating the dress code on the city bus, which, again, I didn't even know that there were dress codes on the city bus, but apparently he violated it. Uh, uh, he was uh, put into jail. It took nine days, I believe, for his mother to come up with the $500 uh, to post, post bail for him. Uh, which she did by getting a title loan on her vehicle. Now, you know, say what you will. Uh, this individual who had no priors did not. You know, the violation of the dress code does not suggest in any way to me that he's a grave danger to society. Uh, and yet, you locked him up for nine days uh, over five hundred dollars. When, again, if you were using risk assessment tools or something of the like, it seems like we could have solved this much easier at a much lower cost to the community and, and far less disruptive. Uh, to this individual's life. So in uh, 2020, on a lot of these issues, do states feel like this was our bite at the apple? We did it. Now, you people who are very concerned about this issue, we have uh, we have placated you. Please go away. Or is this, uh, in your view, something that will broaden where states are more serious about uh, criminal justice reform? Uh I think going this, forward, I think this is a continuing trend uh, that you're going to see. Um, two states last year uh, initiated uh, uh, a fairly substantial reform. California passed uh, uh, cash bail reform, which required the use of risk assessments uh, conducted by um, an agency of the pretrial assessment services. Uh, it created a presumption that the court will release defendants on their own recognizance at arraignment with the least restrictive non monetary conditions that will reasonably assure public safety and the defendants return to court. So pretty strong uh, uh, bail reform there. Uh, New Hampshire also passed bail reform, uh, which revised bail to require, among other things, that a court shall not impose a financial condition that will result in the pretrial of a pretrial detention of a person solely as a result of that financial condition. Um, 
But I, I tend to think this is an issue. Uh, you know, I'll tell you in Ohio, we had a commission that was set up by the state Supreme Court that has recommended modifying the rule, the uh, uh, the bail rule set by the court, and those are set pro- to uh, to go up uh, uh, for modification this next year. And and there's probably going to be legislation that follows along with that. So I think that this is something that I think you're going to continue seeing. As you continue to see refinement of these risk assessment tools, um, you know, the, I think the one knock by some folks in the ACLU and others is whether or not there's uh, racially disparate impact with regard to uh, you know some of these tools. Uh, you know, I think that the key is transparency, and a number of them actually are relatively transparent in the factors that they consider. Uh, but the other thing is, I think that like any you know sort of tool like this. Uh, I think they'll get better over time as more and more data uh, is is uh, uh, brought into play and more jurisdictions adopt them. But in any event, I think the the answer is keeping with the current system, which I think has pretty serious racially disparate uh, effects uh, and can be devastating uh, to folks like you know the kid in Dayton who spent nine days in jail over a petty infraction. Um, you know, those effects are absolutely devastating to individuals. Robert Alt is president of the Buckeye Institute in Ohio. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>